can we legally give people psychedelic-assisted sex therapy? Can we give them a path for reigniting that sexual connection when things have lost their spark? Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Dr. Molly Malouf is a Stanford professor, author of The Spark Factor, and expert in biohacking and human connection. In this episode, she's going to explain how biohacking can increase your lifespan, how it differs for men and women, and how to biohack your sex life. I was so impressed by your new book, which has come out called Spark. And many of us might have heard of the definition of health, which is basically stated by the World Health Organization. They say that health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Then I read your book, which I connected to in so many ways, and this really caught my attention. So I wanted you to start off by how you define your definition of health. So I wrote the book, The Spark Factor, because I've been studying the first principles of health for most of my career, trying to understand how do you measure and optimize health. But first, I wanted to know what health was. And again, I don't think health is what this WHO definition is about, because that kind of paints this perfect world picture. Like people are just walking around without any problems at all. Mm-hmm. And it's really the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. And so health is, is is not this static state. It's how are you actually adapting to the world around you? What happens when you get sick? Do you bounce back? What happens if you get hit with a major life stressor? Are you resilient? Like these are the ways to see health. And it's really not the way that most of the world understands it. It's like those testing moments, isn't it? And I'm super passionate since I started kind of on the trajectory into the nutritional and mental health kind of sector on the preventative methods. And I think this is really what that statement concludes is like, actually, life is not linear and it's not perfect. And how do we handle our health and our mental health and our physical health when life really throws us that curveball, which is life? Right. I mean, I I personally think that health is a product of our energy capacity Mm. and the people that we surround ourselves with. So basically, your energy capacity, what does that even mean, right? It means like how much does your body produce energy effectively and efficiently and how do you store that? Mm -hmm. Most Americans, where I'm from, I'm from the United States, like 88% of the Americans are metabolically unhealthy, which is really problematic because that's setting people up for so many chronic diseases like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and dementia, let alone all of the mental illnesses that people are suffering from. So first and foremost, if you want to be healthy, you have to optimize your metabolism. Second of all, like, if you don't have a strong social network of people around you, when you get hit with a major life stressor, you're not going to have the support system required to help you bounce back. Mm -hmm. So that's really what I've kind of structured my book around and structured my career around, which is optimizing metabolism through food, lifestyle, sleep, stress management, environment, biohacking. And then now where I'm heading a lot of my career towards is the understanding of of human connection as medicine, Mm -hmm. which isn't part of mainstream medicine today. So human connection was what we really bonded over at that dinner last week. And I really want to get onto that. And just before we do, I'm going to talk a little bit about what you touched upon, which is biohacking. Sure. Because many people listening to this might be fearful of that word, not understand it, might not relate to it, might feel that it's very far from them. And I kind of want to like narrow this down to a bit more of a simple terminology on actually there are things people might be doing that are unaware of, that they're actually biohacking themselves already, whether that's with movement, sleep, connection. It's the things that you've just kind of stated and talked about. But what really grabbed me from the spark factor in your book was that you opened it with women were the original biohackers. And what really kind of caught my attention was how much of this is being male dominated. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to talk about actually why you wrote that book, why it's really important to highlight this, that it's basically male dominated and we need to transfer it more to women. And how can we actually make this more simplified um, and approachable for people? So biohacking, you know, as a term was coined by this guy, Dave Asprey, Mm -hmm. who actually wrote the foreword of my book. And... The thing about biohacking is that it's really about intentionally gathering information about your body and maybe your individual environment in order to make changes in your lifestyle to optimize your health. So it's being, it's taking a personalized approach to health optimization. And if you think about healthcare today, like the mainstream healthcare system is really designed to ration care, 
to ensure that the people who are the sickest get the help that they need. The problem with this model is that it doesn't encourage people to optimize health. Mm -hmm. It doesn't encourage people to, to actually gather information about their bodies. I even saw this health influencer uh, a few days ago make a point on Instagram about how nobody should be getting full body MRIs because they're wasteful. And I was just like, what's wrong with wanting to know what's going on inside your body, right? Like, women were the original biohackers because we were having to figure out all of these hormonal changes that are mm. happening to us throughout our lifespan. So as children, we go through puberty, which is pretty intense, right? Men go through it too, obviously. But women start a period. And then from there, we are basically told that if you have any problems with your period throughout your youth, that you should just take birth control. And birth control is really, unfortunately— becoming a big problem in society because it kind of covers up a lot of health problems that a women have with their with their hormones and also can even disrupt your pheromone system so that you may not be as attracted to your partner if you go off of it. And I have a friend who's actually getting divorced because she's no longer attracted to her partner. Oh my gosh. I we mean, spoke it, to Dr. Mindy about this, Dr. Mindy Peltz yeah. last season. I'd go and check that out. I was astounded by... Right? I'd only just started realizing that when I spoke to her. Yeah, so we've been biohacking, I mean, in the 60s. So the birth control came around during the, the sort of second sexual revolution in the 60s. And it was about women's liberation. It was about we can have sex now and we can not have to get pregnant. But we didn't realize that there was all these downstream negative effects to this, right? At the same time, you know, women have these other changes throughout our lives, right? We get pregnant. We have to—now women are biohacking their fertility. We are storing our eggs. I'm about to go through an egg preservation cycle in a few months. And then women go through perimenopause, right? And then they go through menopause. Now there's this entire movement of optimizing hormones during perimenopause, optimizing metabolism as we get older. So women have these unique, you know, metabolic changes as a result of our hormonal changes throughout our lives. And so we've been biohacking for a long time trying mm. to figure out all of these shifts. And what's really exciting is that we have better data than ever. We have better labs than ever. And we have an entire industry emerging around what's called functional medicine, uh, holistic medicine, <clears throat> naturopathic medicine. And all of this is heading towards a new system of health being created around not just fixing sickness, but optimizing health, optimizing your ability to adapt and self-manage to the face in the face of adversity, but also allowing you to adapt and self-manage to the changes of your life. It's basically taking control, isn't it? Yeah. And it's also applying the scientific method to not just diagnosing and treating illness, mm. but gathering information about different facets of your health. Like, for example, I have an aura ring. I can see how I sleep. I can see my stress levels. I can see if I'm moving enough. Mm -hmm. And I can make changes about my lifestyle based on information that I know about myself. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes with wearing a blood sugar monitor. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a friend who was in the New York Times recently on an article on perimenopause. And she was basically describing how, you know, she had all of these horrible symptoms of perimenopause. And it wasn't until she started wearing a blood sugar monitor, which I encourage her to wear, that she started realizing, oh my gosh, I can actually fix a lot of my menopausal symptoms by fixing my blood sugar. And a lot of women don't realize as they start hitting their 40s, the late 40s, their estrogen levels start to decline. And when your estrogen levels go down, your insulin resistance can go up. So you can become mm. less sensitive to insulin, which means your blood sugar can rise. And when your blood sugar starts to rise, you start feeling not so well. You start having all sorts of you know problems with your, your energy and focus. So there's so much more that we can do for our bodies than we realize. And right now, there's this big argument that, like, should people be allowed to wear blood sugar monitors if they're not diabetic? And I argue, why not know about your blood sugar before you get sick? Why not know about prediabetes before you get diabetes? Mm. Why not know about pre-prediabetes before you get diabetes? We know that blood sugar dysregulation contributes to things like heart disease and hypertension. So why not check it early? We're checking our blood pressure. Why not check our blood sugar? Mm -hmm. And something that I really want to put in here that I didn't put in the beginning is around just speaking around orthorexia. Yes. Just because Very you important. do mention it in your book, and I'm so aware of anyone who kind of tunes into the show, yes. that this is really important to be aware of, that it can create more of an obsessive lifestyle around the food you consume, how much movement you're doing, sure. and always really want to make sure that we're always just kind of putting that out there, that yeah. if anyone does have disordered eating or anything Very like that, important. to always consult a GP. Right. 100%, it's so important to acknowledge the fact that 
there's a lot of disordered health behavior out there to begin mm-hmm. with. I know people, I know men that won't go out to dinner with their friends because they they won't be able to eat the way that they want to eat to be healthy. So it's not just women, it's also men. Mm-hmm. But I also know that there's a lot of women with polycystic ovarian disorder and insulin resistance and they're struggling with binge eating and they're struggling with wonder, uh, trying to understand why can't they control themselves. And oftentimes there is an element of insulin resistance that's undiagnosed. So it's a it's a balancing act, right? Yeah. You have to balance the wanting to be healthy with wanting to be emotionally fit and balanced as well. So during the pandemic, I was actually able to really find a sort of new normal for myself. I had moved away from California where I didn't have access to the same kind of food environment that I was living with. California has the, some of the best food in the country. And I was living in the Midwest. And so I kind of had by nature to like loosen my my rigidity a little bit around how I was eating. Of course, I gained 10 pounds and that wasn't super fun for me. But I also gained a ability to be a little bit less obsessed with perfection, Mm. which actually led me to have a healthier relationship with myself. Now, I did lose the weight after the pandemic was over because I was less isolated and I was more um, connected to my friends and I just felt less stressed out. Mm -hmm. But what I learned was that by going off all of my monitoring for a little while, I definitely did experience some some health, some negative health effects. But I also experienced some improvement in like just not being so, um, not being such a perfectionist. And I think mm-hmm. that it really led to me realizing that you can have a balanced relationship with with health monitoring if you decide that you don't do it all the time. Mm. So what I do is I do a blood sugar monitor like once a quarter instead of every month. Mm-hmm. And obviously every month is expensive. But once a quarter is really helpful for starting to get you to be aware of some of your habits. Like, for example, I've been in Europe for a few weeks, and I've definitely ate more um, refined carbohydrates and sugar because I've kind of given myself August as more of a vacation month. Mm -hmm. Prior to August, I was eating really, really healthy. I was eating my exact diet that I love to eat. I was working out in the gym three days a week. I was walking consistently, and I was in really good shape. And my the beauty of, like— what I love about being human is that you can really bounce in and out of perf- of like really good shape to like kind of average shape pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. What I think is so fun about where I'm at in life now is I'm okay with myself no matter where I'm at. Like that's what your goal should be. It shouldn't be perfect labs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love having good looking labs. <laughs> but And I love being in really great fit shape. I personally prefer it. But I have a relationship to my body now that is far more accepting and loving and compassionate and less focused on this peak peak state of health. Mm-hmm. Because I know that what my body is doing is it's adapting to my environment. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be on vacation for a week and I'm going to gain a few pounds because I enjoyed myself, great, the weight's going to come off in a few weeks after I get back into my into my practices. I'm not a bodybuilder per, like per se. I have friends that are bodybuilders and they are constantly in like, they're, they're constantly in like, perfection shape. Like, that's what their aim is. But I have also seen that lifestyle really contribute to metabolic disharmony and people get really out of shape and really have problems with metabolism because they're pushing their bodies into this state of just... um, it's in, it's, it's in his, it can be in a state of imbalance. Mm-hmm. And then when they go to even a normal t- sort of dietary style, they just like their body just like really puts on weight quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think the goal should always be balance. And the goal should fundamentally be a, a really healthy mental health relationship to you. And I worked for a year on self-love. And that was probably the most important work that I've ever done because it made me realize that if I put a few pounds on during stressful times or maybe put a few pounds on during fun times— I don't have to beat myself up for that anymore, you know? And a lot of women do, Mm. and that is not healthy. Like, you should be able to recognize that when you're under significant stress, which, by the way, when I was launching this book last year, I definitely went through a period of, like, holy crap, I am really, really stressed out. And I gained some weight. And then when the book was published, I lost the weight. And it was a different relationship to weight gain than I've ever had because I realized that my body was trying to protect me. Women don't realize that. If you are struggling with weight loss because you're very stressed, your body is literally trying to protect you by putting on weight, by holding on to calories. Mm -hmm. This is an adaptive response. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is when stress is years and years and years of unrelenting stress and you never take time to recover, 
that's when things start to get really imbalanced and that's when you start to really lose homeostatic capacity, which is basically your body's ability to maintain normal baseline. Mm -hmm. So that's when your blood sugar starts to go up, your blood pressure starts to go up, your weight starts to creep into unhealthy ranges. Mm -hmm. You don't want that to be your life. That's why I wear these wearables. That's why I put on the blood sugar monitor. That's why I check my blood sugar, my blood pressure, my labs regularly because I'm always trying to keep tabs on these things so I know if something's going out of balance. Mm -hmm. So it's like a little alert thing and I think that's what's really important, isn't it? It's about... When someone's hearing this maybe for the first time, which is what I'm always really aware of, is like to not get overwhelmed with all of these things. So not yeah. to go out and buy 10 different things to buy a hack your health. Right. It's like, okay, how much self-love am I giving? How much sleep am I getting? What is my food and my diet looking like? How much human connection am I having? It's like starting with a smaller baseline. Personally, my whole area within health started because I was fundamentally lonely when I was modeling. And I was completely disconnected for about five years from any community. Oh. Even in the work sense, you know, every yeah. day I was on set with a different person. So I never even built the community at work. Yeah. And I love that you have now like pivoted your research at Stanford into human connection. Because I think it's one of the biggest things that we can do that is free. Yeah. that can be accessible for some, not for everyone. I know it's much harder for many people to they live in more isolated communities. Sure. But it's one of the things that we can start to try and engage in. So can you talk about really why is it so essential for us to have human connection? Do you want to get more focused, improve your sleep, or support your energy levels? Then great news, because we've teamed up with my favorite functional mushroom brand, Bloomin'. The first 1,000 people to use the code LWBW1000 can try it for themselves for free. Now, many people struggle with short attention spans these days. Fortunately, there is a natural way to help improve these problems, and that is Lion's Mane Mushroom. But how does it work? Well, Lion's Mane may improve neuroplasticity by helping repair damaged neurons and restoring healthy ones. And this is great news for anyone looking to improve their memory and focus. Now I know what you're thinking, and no, they don't get you high, and they don't taste a mushroom, they are just full of the good stuff. All their blends have the highest amounts of fungal beta-glucan compounds, active ingredients on the market, and they're organic and double extracted. So whether you choose focus for cognitive function, boost for all-day energy, rescue for antioxidants, or breathe for calming anxiety. Each blend's designed to work for your needs. So head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 at checkout. There's free mushroom powder for the first 1,000 listeners, meaning you'll get your first Bloomin product completely free. There is also a link in the show notes. When I was at Stanford and I was creating this course on HealthSpan, I was actually living in Japan at the time, and I was fairly isolated at the time. And I remember writing this lecture on human connection. And I was like, well, obviously this is important to health, but I didn't know how important it was. I had no idea how important it was until I was like, oh my God, this is literally the greatest factor in longevity and happiness that we know of. And loneliness is worse for your health than smoking, drinking, sedentary behavior, and obesity. I was floored. That was a mic drop moment. It was a mic drop moment. And it was a moment where I just said to myself, huh, I've been spending all this time on monitoring labs and getting my metabolism in order and making sure that I, you know, know what's going on inside my body and the bodies of all my clients. And I was so obsessed with metabolism that I forgot about, okay, we have this energy flow through our body, right? But we also have this need to connect with other people's energy. So our heart has this electromagnetic field around it, which we measure through EKG. Our brain has electromagnetic fields we measure through QEEG. So we literally are electromagnetic beings. And our mitochondria, these powerhouses of the cell, they are not just making energy and creating power. They're also directing where the energy goes. They're also determining and sensing and integrating our environment to, to, to determine if we feel safe and can we relax and can we enjoy, enjoy you know, peacetime, mm -hmm. which is typically when you feel aroused and excited and, and, and literally the mitochondria produce sex, help produce sex hormones. 
but they also produce stress hormones. So when you feel unsafe, your mitochondria decide, they help you determine, am I going to create epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol? So that's why I was like, wow, these mitochondria are literally the seed of our health. And they're also a window into the importance of connection because it goes beyond just the energy we create. It's also where does it go and why? Mm. And that was when I started feeling like, okay, I'm starting to understand the meaning of life. <laughs> I'm starting to understand <laughs> that we're here on this earth. Well, primarily our bodies are here. Or like our evolutionary biology has enabled us to evolve mm-hmm. and gather energy from our environment, right? Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, you got to survive, right? Maslow's hierarchy is survival at the bottom. Mm-hmm. But after you've got your survival needs taken care of, you have a need to connect. You have, you have need for love and, and you know, social esteem. You have need for connecting with other people to feel safe, right? And to also increase the chances of reproduction. So we evolved love as this motivational force to bring people together, to create proximity. If you look at somebody who loves someone, like whether it's family or friends or partners, they're almost always touching, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, all, they're also opening themselves up to being available. And that proximity making is key because when you are in the presence of another person, you're more likely to share resources. Like I'm having dinner with friends tonight. You're going to share food. You're going to share information out for dinner, right? You're going to share ways that you can enhance a person's life. You may even meet a person at a dinner that you might find as a, as a potential partner. So we need to be interacting with other people on a fundamental level, on a regular basis, because this is a part of your survival and your reproduction if you want to make people, make Mm -hmm. more people. Mm -hmm. But loneliness is really key, right? So that's love, right? Love is driving us together. But what about if you're apart and by yourself and isolated? So the most stressful time of last year for me was when I was heads down on the book, finishing up edits, finishing recordings, and I was isolated for a little while. And I called my best friend, and she had moved away. And I said, Sarah, I am so sad right now. I don't have enough friends. And I'm just like in this new city, and I need more people. And she's like, Molly, people call me every day saying the same thing. You just got to go out and make, make, make community. You're good at this. And I was like, you're right. I actually, I'm really good at making community. <laughs> so I started building a community of women around me. And now it's like a women of, it's a community of 65 women. Wow. And they're amazing. I mean, we have a WhatsApp group. We do events. Like everyone shares resources. I mean, literally people set each other up on dates with other guys that like maybe not be good for them, but they're good for another person. So it's a great community of women and it's totally transformed my quality of life in Austin. And it's also made me realize just how not impossible it is to mm-hmm. make friends, right? It's really about you got to have a few friends and then you basically, if you meet new people, you say, hey, do you want to join my community? And I add them to my WhatsApp group. It's really not that complicated, but it takes some courage, right? The thing I also want to mention about loneliness, just to go back to the evolution of biology perspective, is when you're isolated and alone, we've like we've actually discovered through more new research at MIT that there's literally a place in your brain that feels pain when you are isolated. Like that actually feels pain. And, and that's a pain signal for a reason. Because loneliness is like hunger or thirst. It's designed to bring you closer to your tribe. It's designed to bring you closer to people. Because if you were on the outskirts of a society in primitive times, you would be likely to potentially lose your tribe. Let's say if, like you weren't connected to your tribe. What if you got lost and like you didn't find your people? You could be, you know, left behind if they were attacked by a neighboring tribe. What if you got attacked by a neighboring tribe? What if you got attacked by a wild animal? That's why you're not supposed to be on the outskirts. You're supposed to be connected. We evolved loneliness just like hunger and thirst to protect us. So that's why it's painful. And so it, it's so fundamental to actually connect with other people because you need it to actually live your best life and to actually not have the stress signals go off on your brain. Mm-hmm. When you're around people that you feel trust and love with, you get oxytocin and you get this, this, this hormone of safety, this hormone of healing. It's actually anti, um, antioxidant, mm-hmm. so it protects your mitochondria. It's anti-inflammatory. It also is protective to your heart and it makes you feel good. You know, it's good for your nervous system. It reduces stress. So that's why I love spending time with people and I love having people around me that I that I care about because I feel just generally better. I feel healthier and happier. How can we increase our oxytocin levels naturally? Because you have sure. this amazing part in your book yeah. where you talk about this. And I think, you know, we think about oxytocin if we like, I think, you know, if we're holding a baby, that's the one thing I thought yeah. of because, you know, I have my godson's christening recently yeah. and I just remember feeling I'm so in love in that weekend because I was holding this little baby. Yeah. And reading your book, I was like, it actually releases oxytocin. Well, for a reason. For So can we talk yeah. about these kind of different elements of how we can do this naturally so people can go, okay, I've heard this is really important. How can I put this into action? 
Well, so first off, if babies didn't make you release oxytocin, they wouldn't survive. So they literally are designed so that you can bond to them because they, they're helpless, right? Do dogs do that as well? Dogs as well, Yeah, right? okay, So that's dogs why. and humans, so t- just holding, hanging out, hanging out with a dog. Dogs are um, associated with, like, literally years of improvement of lifespan. Like, potentially eight years by having a dog. Which is insane. Getting massage. So I'm a big, big fan of massage because human touch is a really Mm. great path to longevity. Mm -hmm. Just getting more touch because you're going to get oxytocin. Even just touching your own arm, just kind of like rubbing your own arm with your fingers is great. But hugging your friends is really important. Mm -hmm. My favorite form of oxytocin, though, is orgasm. (laughs) So Let's just get straight on to biohacking our sex. I mean, for real. Like, this is the thing that I think is something that we just don't see as medicine. Mm -hmm. But you get a mass amount of oxytocin release during orgasm. So masturbation is a great path if you don't have mm-hmm. a partner. But if you do have a partner, giving and receiving sexual touch, sensual touch, you know, it is one of the most powerful forms. Making out, kissing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the lost art of making out, right? Like people often get in relationships and they stop making out. They just, just go straight to sex. Yeah. But there's so much that you can do to really enhance your lifespan and health span by just connecting with your partners. I know, and it's one of those things, I think, like we've started to talk about this a lot more on the podcast recently, actually. Yeah. And there's a whole chapter, by the way, this is why you need to buy the Spark Factor, <laughs> on biohacking your sexual spark. Yeah. Obviously, I was immediately drawn to this chapter. Yeah. Um, hack your way to better sex. Let's talk about it. Okay, so I was studying the science of love, right? I would love to say that's what I studied in, but I just love it. Yes. Well, I've studied the science of human metabolism and food. And, you know, I really want to understand energy and I figured it out, right? So I really feel like I've kind of mastered that. And a big piece of the book is on metabolism. Yes, it is. But I felt like, I felt like there's so many companies that are on their way to like really enabling the masses to have access to really good tools. Like the company Lumen, for example, I'm Mm -hmm. an advisor of. Mm -hmm. It's a metabolic flexibility monitor. You can measure your metabolism in real time. Levels Health, I'm an advisor of. It's a blood sugar monitoring company. You can get a blood sugar monitor. There's a company in um, UK called Sava. They're going to make microneedle patches for blood sugar monitoring that are going to be cheaper, faster, and more available to everyone. Um, Super Sapiens, they use Abbott and Dexcom. You can get that in the UK. So I felt like everybody was basically catching on to metabolism. And I was like, all right, well, spent like 10 years on metabolism. I figured it out. I've helped a lot of companies. I need to start a company and I need to do what is no one working on right now? And I was like, hmm, well, I feel like sexuality and human connection really needs to be worked on as a systematic, we need a systematic approach to optimizing human love. Mm -hmm. And I started accumulating all these advisors. And one of my advisors, Sue Carter, she discovered pair bonding and prairie voles as one of the world's expert on the science of oxytocin. And she goes, Molly, are you really sure that you want to tackle love and sexuality? Because you're going to be burned at the stake. And I was like, Sue, I am basically Wonder Woman. So <laughs> I can handle it. I, I am, I'm fully capable of being handled. Uh, I, I can handle this stuff. And by the way, I'm also going to tackle psychedelics. And she's like, okay, you're going to deal with the three things that are super taboo and the scientific community does not really want to address. And um, you're going to do this publicly? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> and I was just like, look, I love things that are that are on the edge. And I love things that are, um, that are the frontier. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time I die, people are going to look back on what I was doing and be like, she was a pioneer. And she was way ahead of her time. But also, I am standing on the shoulder of giants. Like, mm. there are so many people, like Masters and Johnson, for example, were this pioneering couple in the 60s during the sexual revolution. And they invented sensate therapy. It was the world's first sex therapy. They, they, and it really what it, was, what it was was mindfulness-based sensual touch. There's literally a, an entire TV show about them on Netflix called Masters of Sex. And they were working on studying sexuality in the hospital. And then they were discovered that they were doing this. They got kicked out. And I needed to take my career in a direction that was on the edge, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to to study the things that nobody else was looking at. Mm -hmm. So I started Adamo. And Adamo initially was started as a psychedelic pharmaceutical company. And I was studying uh, a pharmaceutical love potion. And I actually developed, I mean, it actually works. Love potion. I mean, it actually does make you feel these intense feelings of romantic love. It's a powerful tool. Well, it enhances um, 
the neurobiology of love. So it creates this deep sense of desire, which is through dopamine, right? So you get this intense feeling of interest and and excitement about this other person that you're with, right? And you're just kind of, and then you get this, you get this norepinephrine, which is this obsession, which is like, oh my God, so I can't stop thinking about this person. And then you get serotonin, which is like, this person feels like home. This person feels really safe. And then you get a lot of oxytocin, which is this feeling of um, bonding and connection, right? So it's, it's literally enhancing the neurobiology of love through intactogenic um, psychedelic medicine. And it's a powerful combination drug that a friend of mine developed underground. But I, I started watching these Netflix shows about people taking love potions. And I was like, oh, shoot, this is kind of potentially manipulative. But I was like, but what if people wanted this? Like, what if you were in a partnership where you wanted to work on something that was really challenging and you knew that there was a medicine that could bring you back to the limerence phase of love? Like, would that be such a terrible thing? Again, I started feeling really conflicted about this because I was like, okay, let's go study the, the ethics of psychedelic aphrodisiacs. And so I brought on this guy, Brian Earp, who wrote the book Love Drugs. And I was really starting to understand, trying to understand the chemical future of relationships. And I do think whether we like it or not, whether it's ethic, like I'm literally speaking about psychedelic sexual ethics at Oxford next week. So mm-hmm. we are literally actively investigating, is this an ethical thing to do? to actually manipulate human love. Mm. And I think it's a big question. It is one, because I kind of, in a weird way, thinking about it, can we force that? You know, it's one of those things that it should be natural. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if we can't reignite the spark, ironically that I'm using that right? word, but if we can't ignite that spark, is it best that actually maybe that ship has sailed? Or, That's the you thing. know, that we're not, we're kind of pushing ourselves and we're not listening to that intuition, which I fundamentally believe is really important that many of us become disconnected from. I have a favor to ask. 74% of people that watch this podcast haven't hit subscribe and 15% haven't hit the bell to turn on notifications. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible to keep sharing expert information and powerful stories to improve your life. So if you've ever enjoyed my podcast, please hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Doing this small favor will really help me. Thank you. So this woman, Sarah Tilly, she has another company called Beautiful Spaces that's Mm -hmm. based out of the UK and Amsterdam. And she is in particular working with couples that are about to divorce with psilocybin. And according to the book Love Drugs, it's a really big ethical question if people who are on their way out of a relationship should take medicine to save the relationship. This is this is something that I've talked to people about. People I know people who've said psychedelics saved my marriage. I also know people who've taken psychedelics and gotten divorced and said this really made it hard for me to divorce and it made it hard for me to dis, to detach from my partner. And in fact, I had to use MDMA assisted therapy to actually heal the trauma of the divorce. And so there's it's almost like a double-edged sword, mm. right? These tools can help us heal trauma. They can help us heal our, you know, depression. They can help us potentially heal relationships. Or what I'm interested in is how do we give them to people as prevention for problems in the future? So how do we give, like, I know multiple people who take psychedelics quarterly to strengthen the bonds of their marriage. That's the angle I'm taking, is can we give people psychedelic protocols for strengthening their bonds to keep them together for longer. It's a different approach. It definitely doesn't fit within the medical model today. So the only way that I can do this legally is through sexual dysfunction. So sexual dysfunction is a diagnostic code. And one of the biggest drivers of sexual dysfunction is relationship problems. So I am interested in how do we help people with sexual trauma, with mood disorders, with relationship problems who have sexual side effects. For example, if you take antidepressants, mm-hmm. you're likely going to have problems with your sexual, your sex drive, which can, by the way, affect your relationship, mm. which can lead to, the, like, if you, don't, if you stop having sex with your partner, it can really lead to a breakup because mm-hmm. if your partner's not getting what they need, that can cause real problems. But if you have sexual trauma, that can cause real problems with forming relationships and having a healthy relationship with sex. But let's say you have... You know, you're developing some resentment to your partner. You still love them, but you're really still struggling with finding attraction to them because you're kind of like, yeah, we've been together for a few years and I'm just like not sure I'm as into him anymore. What if you were able to use a experience to reignite that spark 
within your relationship, which you are both committed and you're deciding you're not going to get divorced. You're deciding you're in it to win it. You're in it for the long haul. Can we legally give people psychedelic-assisted sex therapy? Can we give them a path for reigniting that sexual connection when things have lost their spark? So I paused on this drug development because I was like, I don't know. I don't know if we should do this or not. <laughs> like, I don't know if this is safe or not. Well, I didn't fully pause on it. We're actually, I'm working with another company that's developing some products that are potentially going to be used as psychedelic aphrodisiacs alongside our protocol. But what we decided to work on in the last year was the sex therapy piece. Because I was like, well, even if I can't get this drug approved, because it's a really complex drug, it's three new um, chemical entities, which would be nine-arm clinical trials, which, which means I would either have to develop this outside of the United States, or if I developed it inside the United States, it would cost three times as much, and it would also take probably like a lot longer than a normal drug to get approved. So I paused on the three-drug combination and then decided, okay, I want to build a company and a brand with a mission to really pioneer the science of love and connection. And what is love, right? Love is the sex drive. It's a drive to fall in love because the more you have sex with a person, the more romantic love feelings you develop for this person. This is why I believe polyamory is, very, is a risky business for a lot of people because if you have sex with one person a lot, you're more likely to fall in love with them. So I recently spoke to somebody who said, well, my wife and I have different proclivities for sex. I want more of it than she does. I'm thinking of opening the relationship. And I was like, are you sure you really want to do this? Because if you open this relationship and you start having sex with someone else a lot, there's a really good chance you're going to fall in love with that other person. And then that will break up your relationship. So I think it's so important for people to be aware of these drives. Mm. So we have these primitive drives for a reason. You have a drive to have sex with people because you're, you're literally supposed to fall in love with someone. Because falling in love increases the chances of you getting attached. And attachment is good for the child. Because if you get attached to this person and have a baby with them— you're going to keep that baby alive because you have that bond of love between you and your partner that, can, that keeps that commitment strong. So this is why my company actually exists. It's to actually bring people together to keep relationships together for the long haul. Like I want people to realize that sex is a path to greater and deeper love. Mm. Sex can be a path to greater and deeper bonds. So I hired these sex therapists, Aaron Michael and Saida Desilei, who are, in my opinion, the world's next Masters and Johnson. And through their genius and their love, because they're, they're in partnership, they created a baby of what's called the Adamo method. And it's a combination of the Desilet method and the Aaron Michael method, which is what is known as suction sex. And, and we created a combination method that is basically the world's first sex therapy that addresses the act of sex itself, which no other sex therapy in the world is a somatic therapy. They're all based on, well, technically sensei therapy is somewhat somatic, but it's a mindfulness-based sensual touch that actually takes sex off the table for a month. And you just don't have sex and you focus on sensually touching your partner and being mindful of how it feels. And it works pretty well for some people to fix their sexual dysfunction, but it doesn't work for the problems that come up during sex, which is a lot of women and men experience problems with erection and arousal. A lot of men and women experience problems with pain because of friction. And a lot of people struggle with, with orgasm. Mm. And so I actually personally experienced all three sexual dysfunctions. I had problems with arousal, I had problems with pain, and I had problems with orgasm. And for me, what led me to healing my sexual dysfunction was I, I used psychedelic medicine, accidentally healed a bunch of sexual trauma in my early 30s, which led to me being on a path of self-discovery and healing attachment wounds and healing my relationship with myself. So we're developing, right now we're finishing up and testing and launching the Adamo Method in the next couple months. But we're also going to be developing a singles protocol because I got so much feedback from all these individuals who are like, I'm single and I struggle with my sexuality because I can't find a partner because I've got trauma or I've got a, bar a bad relationship with myself. And I had this attachment wound from my parents. And so we, we realized we need to build an entire protocol for singles who struggle with anxiety around sex mm -hmm. and problems with relating to themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's the next thing we're going to build next year. But first thing we're focused on is a psychosexual somatic therapy around understanding your relationship to sex. So first, the first two weeks of the therapy focus on um, well, before we even get into therapy, we've developed our own measures of sexual function, sexual dysfunction, um, love, and attachment, which is mm -hmm. all of 
the all of the facets of love, right? So this is what my company's aiming to do is to measurably improve love and connection between within in between people. So that's why we develop measures first. And then we're also developing the therapy. And the therapy, the first two weeks of the therapy are all around your relation to your sexuality. So there's this concept of erotic individuation and sexual sovereignty. So what does that mean? It means that you are responsible for your for what turns you on, to understand what turns you on, to understand your relationship to eroticism, right? The things that are related, that, that, that are what turn your brain on are not the same things that maybe turn your partner on. So you need to understand that about yourself and your partner and share that. The communication is yes. essential. Essential. So one of the things that we are measuring in the study is sexual communication because we mm-hmm. think we're going to improve that. We also want people to realize that you are a sexually sovereign being. So you have to understand your body is your body. Your partner's body is his body. And you have to learn to start asking for, asking yourself, do I want this? In every moment, do I want this experience? We often just appease other people we're having sex with. Often women in particular engage in sex as a performative act. Mm -hmm. And often both men and women, because we're watching a lot of porn, which everybody's watching porn, let's get real. People are watching porn and they're seeing sex as a performative act. And they're also watching sex as a masturbatory act where People are having sex with another person, but it's a masturbatory exercise. They're not even present for the other Mm. person. And so first and foremost, we want people to get engaged in their own bodies. And then we want people to understand the relationship to their pelvic floor and the power of pelvic floor breathing, which is basically you learning to use your mind to literally turn yourself on, to literally turn, like create engorgement and and erection with your mind first without even needing a partner. And this is actually really useful for masturbation. So like literally being able to breathe in and push out your pelvic floor and learning that relationship between the mind-pelvic floor connection is a way for enhancing all aspects of your sex life. I started using the, doing this during masturbation and I was like, wow, you can orgasm so much faster. It's so exciting, just this one quick thing. And then you're also learning the heart-genital connection, which is the relationship between your heart and your genitals, like really the emotional connection between you and your partner and your partner and you, and then you and yourself. Because a lot of people are really disconnected from their heart. They're disconnected from their, from their, from their bodies. And so they're disconnected from themselves. And we want to really help create more connection between people. So we've got a lot of practices, partner practices for creating that connection. We also teach people how to use their hips. Like a lot of people don't know how to use their hips and they're pushing into their partner with their legs. You know when you're like lifting a big heavy box from the floor and you know you injure your back? Well, a lot of people are using their legs to thrust and they're actually not learning how to use their hips properly during sex. And one of the things that you will learn in this, in this protocol is that there is something really important to creating suction instead of just friction. So much of sex is just like in and out, in and out, in and out. And it's like painful and it causes, um, actually can like lessen blood flow. It can cause pain. And most people just aren't aware that this is even happening until afterwards when they're like, gosh, I'm sore, you know? The funniest thing is that people talk about having great sex and they're like, I was sore for days. That's not a badge (laughs) of honor. That is actually a bad. It just of, shows how like misinformed we are. We, we don't need, know what we're doing. We need to be listening to more Shakira. Hips don't lie. The hips really don't lie, right? <laughs> but also, this concept of suction sex is so powerful because it actually requires less energy, yeah. less intense stamina. You can have sex for longer, and this is so important. A lot of people, as they get older, their bodies change, and so it, it's an entire paradigm shift around how we have sex. Because what it's teaching people is that you can have more connected sex because your body is connected during the entire act of sex. Like it's not this friction-based in and out, in and out concept. It's like this concept of connecting and creating suction and using hip movements to move so that you actually have more connection and more pleasure and more arousal in and more of an erotic landscape to what you're feeling internally and what a man is feeling when he is inside of you or if two men are, or a man is inside another man. You have more connection during that act. And so you're actually learning to actually attune your nervous system to the partner and feel and connect. What does that feel like and communicate? Mm-hmm. How does this feel during the moment? But as I mentioned earlier, the important thing is as we get older, our bodies change. 
And so women and men often find that the friction-based sexual intercourse can be even more painful. But suction sex you can do for the rest of your life. So this is like, I'm talking great sex at 80. Like you don't have to look at sex as getting worse as you get older. Mm. You don't have to look at sex as getting worse throughout your relationship. You can actually have better and better sex as you explore new ways of connecting with your partner, which is so exciting because Mm -hmm. so many people think that the longer you're in a relationship, the less sexual spark you have. But I believe that we are pioneering a way for people to actually enhance their sex as they get older and as their relationships go on. And through that connection can lengthen relationships, can deepen connection. And this is why we're doing measures at the end of our program the same measures we gave to the people at the beginning, we're giving at the end, because we want to show people a measurable improvement of feelings of love, connection, and sexual function mm-hmm. and sexual satisfaction. This is the big main marker we're focusing on. I mean, I just, it's so exciting. <laughs> I think the last things that you mentioned around like the touch, the connection, you know, the intimacy, actually being really present is something that people can even just start on from just thinking about what you've said. Presence. And I think like the psychedelic things is so fascinating. I want to pause for one second and say that we have not combined the psychedelic piece with the with the uh, sex therapy yet because mm-hmm. what we're focused on is launching the sex therapy and launching the brand. Uh, Adamo is a brand of elevated intimacy first and foremost. And we have a really cool logo, really cool brand. It's not about really, a, it's not even really, a. it sounds like it's all about sex, but it's really about connection. It's but about intimacy. It's really about intimacy. It's, it's about sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, even mm-hmm. spiritual intimacy. I really think sex is a spiritual act. And the more that we can move people in that direction, the more we can have people see this as a sacred experience that is not this performative experience that's just this this physical act, but this act of communion, mm-hmm. right? And I think that it's a well, this is a wellness company, just as much as I eventually wanted to become a clinical digital health company. We're focusing on wellness first. We're focusing on sexual wellness and sexual health optimization. Mm-hmm. And then long-term vision is that we can heal sexual dysfunction, that we can actually become the gold standard of sex therapy for sexual dysfunction. Mm. But we are starting with optimizing the sex lives of normal people because we have a massive market. Like, you know, there's 60% of people generally don't have sexual dysfunction. 40% of women have sexual dysfunction, but 20% of them have distress about it. We are definitely not trying to deal with the distressed population because there's there's a really good chance that they need to be first get a full workup from a sexual health doctor and um, maybe even do mainstream sex therapy first. Eventually, once we've proven through clinical studies that we are we are the gold standard, then we can help those people. But we're really trying to focus on a lot of the people like me who maybe thought they were having good sex, but like weren't. But you know what? I, as I listen to this story, I feel like your story is the same as loads of my girlfriends. Yeah. But no one talks about it. And we're I think it's, about it's it. really fascinating. Like it's amazing that you can sit here on a show and say this with confidence because you know it's going <laughs> to help loads of people. Whereas I think some people even find it shameful admitting it to themselves. Oh my God, we're Men afraid and to approach women, it. It's a really kind of stigmatized topic. And I think so much, I talk a lot about shame on the show as well. And yeah. So many things that we're fearful of approaching is, is, is shame. It's yep. because of shame. Um, and so if we're not looked at, oh, well, we're not achieving a great sex life, so we're obviously a failure. And I think actually most people aren't. And it's actually yeah. through discussing and learning and growing because you're using your voice to understand one another. Yes. That's the kind of the key, isn't it? Well, the key to, a, you know, actually understanding yourself more about having a better sex life. <laughs> I'm so happy that we've teamed up with Bloomin for this season of the podcast to claim your free month of natural mushroom-based supplements. Head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 to try it for free. There is a link in the show notes. Oftentimes, the thing that makes us the most ashamed about our sexuality oftentimes are what turns us on is right adjacent to our shame. And I did a focus group with a bunch of gay men in Gramercy Park in New York, and it was one of the most amazing nights of my life. Like, literally, I left so high on life because I realized that so much of what turns us on is the thing that we're most ashamed of, right? And I was like, wow, why don't we really look at that a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So we were all sitting around in this group, and all these men, I was like, well, what kind of porn do you watch? And they were like, uni- universally, the porn that turned them on the most was a man who was having his first experience with another man. And it was this, like, really beautiful moment where I was like, wow, this whole room 
the thing that turns them on is the thing that was they were most ashamed about, which is coming out, you know? And then I was looking at my own experience with shame, and I was like, wow, like, I definitely have, like, dug into this in deep, and I'm like, if you talk to anyone about what, what actually they're ashamed about— Oftentimes that's what, if you actually, if you actually talk to them, that's the thing that can get them off. And so like, we need to stop, we need to drop the shame and we need to embrace our shame and actually lift ourselves away from feeling bad about it because oftentimes it can actually unlock whole doors of pleasure that we didn't even know we were into. But really getting in touch with your desires, getting in touch with your fears and telling that to your partner can be a huge path to liberation, which is really what we're aiming to do at this company. There's so much here that I want to speak to you about, something yeah. that I really wanted to connect with. And, you know, I'm very passionate about mental health. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the epicenter of all of this, okay? Yeah. Like, if we're not feeling mentally well in ourselves, yeah. and that can just mean happiness, you yeah. know? It doesn't have to be mentally stable, but just, yeah. you know, if you're feeling a connection and you're looking after your mental health, it's really important. Now, something that I found really interesting, and I'm not sure how many of my listeners will know about yeah. this word, nootropics, that I just mentioned, but that's why I wanted to bring it up. We've sure. never approached this on the show before. Um, it's something that I've found quite fascinating. Sure. I've had a lot of people talk about nootropics in a very prescriptive way, and I'm quite against that in the sense that I think people are very individual, and it's a whole new area, and I think we should actually talk about it as an overarching subject, as opposed to sometimes when I've heard conversations, people give this kind of very prescriptive approach on what they're taking. Yeah. And I think that can actually be a little bit detrimental because that sure. won't work for everyone. So let's just, first of all, before we even get into this, can you explain what a nootropic is? Because there's lots of different forms of nootropics. Sure. So nootropics are basically supplements that people are taking to enhance their cognition, their mood, or really any aspect of your brain's function. So we have these different neurochemical pathways in our brain. We've got the dopaminergic system, which I've talked a little bit about, which is the sort of desire drive. It's like, I want that. I want that. You know, everybody's dopamine overload these days. Then there's norepinephrine drive, which is the stress drive. It's like, I need to focus on that. I need to, I need to like really, you know, it's a help. It's why when people take Adderall, they get dopamine and norepinephrine primarily. So these are hormones of focus and attention. And then there's... Um, and also pleasure. Dopamine is very pleasurable. And then there's um, oxy, well, oxytocin is kind of the bonding hormone, right? So you can actually take intranasal oxytocin and that can affect your, your mood. People use it for depression, right? And then there's um, your acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is all about memory and um, also a facet of cognition, right? And then there's serotonin, which is about feeling connected, feeling grounded and safe, and feeling happy. Really, mm-hmm. it's a happiness hormone. Mm-hmm. And so I use—and then there's endorphins, right, which is the feel-good hormone. So I use this—I I created a derivative scale from the a couple of resources, which anybody can look up. One's called the Braverman Assessment. And the other one's called um, The Mood Cure. It's a book called The Mood Cure. And I, I started neurohacking a long time ago, trying to figure out how to optimize my brain's function. You can also look at your genetics to look at methylation patterns. So I have like a COMT um, gene mutation. And so I use SAMe as a methylation donor. And it's basically helps with my body's ability to produce dopamine effectively. And so you can do a lot of different things that can be program, you can kind of like program your neurobiology a little bit using supplements. And so I like taking choline supplements. That's really improved my memory. I also occasionally microdose, which I'm a big fan of. Not, it's not for everybody, but I do think that there's a whole bunch of research going to be coming out around microdosing. There's a company called MindMed and they're studying LSD microdosing for ADHD. And there's a really good chance that we might see this as a pharmaceutical in the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. which is so crazy. And so like, this stuff is coming, and we're just starting to really understand how to manipulate our own neurobiology. There's a company called Thesis in America. One of my friends was the founder of this company, and they used basically customer surveys to really hone in on formulas that were able to help people with different cognitive deficits, like focus and attention. So a lot of people use Thesis instead of Adderall, and this is just, these are just supplements. There's another company called BioOptimizers in America, and they have the most heavy-duty nootropic products I've ever used in my entire life. But they also have this thing called the Zamner Spray, and it's one of my favorite nootropics. I wish I brought it with me because it's a great all-purpose. I mean, it literally affects so many different systems, but it's a spray 
and it just like boom turns on your brain. I mean, it's awesome, and it got it has GABA in it. I forgot to mention the GABA system. I know. I was thinking about the anti-anxiety system. Yeah, GABA, GABA which and, we speak a lot to David Nutt about. I don't know if you know. Yeah. So I. Oh my gosh, I went yeah. to David Nutt's talk here in town at Imperial College. He's a wonderful and man. He had this drink, and he created this really delightful alcohol alternative. It's GABA-based. And I was like, I really think that he needs to reformulate that with a little bit of a stimulant because it was almost too much of a downer for me. And I was so relaxed that I could barely pay attention. It's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. And I give people this mood mood brain questionnaire that I've created. And then sometimes if I see that there's like global deficits, I'll be like, okay, if you've got problems in every, every system, there's something going on. That's not your brain. It's not just your brain. There's something in your environment that's affecting your brain's function. And I had a client who had a really bad mold exposure. His home was covered in mold. And every single system was down in his brain. And I was like, can you just maybe spend time in your apartment instead of your country home for a while? So I said, just no more sleeping in your country home. You can visit, but I don't want you to go inside. And he started, within a month, started seeing a major improvement in his brain's wow. function. And we got his blood levels tested, and he has super high levels of mold toxins in his body. Mm-hmm. So speaking to a lot of people in England who may not know about this, like mold is a huge issue that if you have it in your house, you really got to look if it's affecting your brain. Because you, maybe you're taking, you know, antidepressants, and it's actually that it's your environment that's causing your brain's dysfunction. So yeah. it needs There's to be so really looked at. There's so many different factors, isn't there? Yeah. Something that I really want to touch upon, it's something that I started, and it's not the synthetic side, it's more of the plant-based side. Oh, which I love I, plants, like not, lion's mane. This is what I want to yeah. talk about, because I've really started finding medicinal mushrooms, which I'm going to yeah. just put in an alert here for anyone. Yeah. They are not psychedelic. They have no psychedelic approach. For sure. Um, they are, you know, they're sourced from mushrooms, but they are kind of functional foods. Yeah. I am a huge, huge fan of medicinal mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Of everything that I put into all of my elixirs and smoothies, I'd say medicinal mushrooms are probably the thing that's consistent because I'm always trying to optimize my brain's function because I have one of the ApoE4 genes. So I need to really pay attention to my cognition and my memory. And there's literal clinical evidence that lion's mane can improve neuroplasticity. So I put it in my smoothies. I put it in my elixirs. I have extracts of it. And let's just talk about neuroplasticity for a moment for anyone who doesn't know what that is. So what does it actually do? So neuroplasticity is your ability to form new neural connections. Mm -hmm. And when you think about when people get depressed or anxious, oftentimes what's wrong is that they've been under so much stress for so long, or maybe they had a major life stressor that just put their body into a state of trying to preserve itself. Mm. And it can downregulate neuroplasticity. You can't keep treating your body like it's this high-performance race car that you just have to take pit stops and you can fix. Like, eventually, things are going to break down. So you have to start taking your taking care of your body like it's a garden and that it needs to, fl- it needs to like, flourish and thrive. Chronic stress degrades neuroplasticity mm-hmm. and creates problems with focus and attention. So if you are living in a way that is hyper-masculine as a woman, that is overextended, that is not honoring your body, you're going to end up probably somewhat depressed. Neuroplasticity is your ability to maintain strong neural connections and form new ones. Mm -hmm. And so that can be affected by hormones. That can really greatly be affected by stress. So if you want to optimize your brain's function without going on mainstream medication— a few grams of lion's mane a day is actually one of the best. And, and they, they say three and a half grams is what you need for neuroplastic benefits, which is a lot. So taking extracts can actually help you because it can really concentrate that mm. lion's mane. If you don't want to take like t- teaspoons and teaspoons of lion's mane, you can um, take extracts of it that are more potent. But I really have found that this has been one of the biggest paths for me to optimize my brain's neural neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Things like CBD as well are a great tool in the toolbox. Uh, lion's mane, CBD, pregnenolone, and huperzine A. You know, these are my favorite tools for cognition. But the big ones for neuroplasticity that I like are exercise, meditation, lion's mane, and CBD. I love that because I'm really getting into it. And I'm really, I'm just fascinated by the research in this area. I feel like there's a real uprise and, you know, coming to the forefront now and not it actually being taken a little bit more seriously. Yeah. And I think what you said is there, it's really important just looking at the dosages and yep. making sure that actually it's got enough mushroom extract in there, yes. which is fungal beta glucan, which is really important for their neuroplasticity. Yeah. As opposed to it being kind of filled with fillers, which... Sometimes with marketing and products, it can be really hard to, you know, navigate the way through that. So I'm really pleased that we touched upon that. Now, 
I know that we've still got so much to talk about, but I really want to get into our Apple subscribers, okay, which is our bonus question, which is kind of for our inner circle on Apple. Now, you touched upon in this episode mitochondrial health. That is such a big focus yeah. of the spark factor. Yeah. And it's really kind of where, you know, you focused your research, as you said, for the last 10 years. What are the kind of five quick tips that people could do sure. to try and support the mitochondrial health? Now, if you want to listen to that, and I suggest that you do, head over to Apple Podcasts to start your free trial of Live Well, Be Well now. So, Molly, I am so happy that you have come here today. I'm so happy that I met you last week. Oh, thank I you. feel like I could talk to you for a very, very long time. <laughs> the last question I have for you today is, what does Live Well, Be Well mean to you? For me, Live Well, Be Well means really taking care of my body so that I produce as much capacity and discover new hidden capacities as possible. I have found that by optimizing my health for like the last 15 years since I was a medical student, I have discovered things that I did not know I was even capable of. And I really think that if more people saw health as a path to self-actualization, they would really see it as more than just a chore, mm. but they'd see it as a path to superpowers. Mm. I also really connect self-love when you say that. Like, yeah. actually, like, you're really putting yourself first. And I think yeah. that's such a beautiful answer because so many of us don't look at self-care as something that's actually fundamental totally. to our well-being. It's more of kind of like a thing we do when we've got time yeah. as opposed to, like, an essential boundary that we need to put into our day-to-day lives. So yeah. I love that answer. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks and for having me. make sure you buy The Spark Factor. And where can people follow you just to... Oh, I'm on Instagram at drmolly.co. And then my company is launching um, www.livingadamo.com, A-D-A-M-O. And yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Molly Maloof, MD. Amazing. Molly, thank you so, so much. Thank you. This was incredible. I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe everyone's well-being journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritize, how to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed, or even ignored. But I'm here to help, and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore, and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals, or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need. And you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just $14.99. Just click the link in the description or visit my website and I'll see you there. Thanks for listening.